politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew everything that matters in the way it matters, at the time it matters. And that's a heck of a lot of issues, but we'll try to cover them one by one here today at CR Podcast. We are back here for September 21st. Daniel Hurwitz, your host, back in the house Thursday. And folks, you could basically depict our situation in a series of numbers. Border numbers, budget numbers, vaccine death numbers. I could throw in cultural decline numbers too. Divorce, marriage, decline of religion. Each one of these things is a civilization killer a life, liberty, property killer in its own right. But yet we're facing them all together at the same time. And what is our plan? And does this mean that the Constitution was a failure? We started this theme last week. I want to talk a little bit more philosophically, thematically today, but then on the second half, to bring it back through the prism of the news of the day like we often do, Was the Constitution a failure? You look at what we have now. And let's take the illegal immigration stuff. We're now averaging a flow of between three and three and a half million illegals a year, if you look at it at an annual pace. So eight to 10,000 illegals caught a day, about another 30% gotaways. So you're going to throw on another million annualized. You cannot imagine, even if every one of those people would be innocuous, um, the burden that would place, and certainly the fact that we're talking about hardened men, gang members, prisoners. They just let out their prisons in Venezuela. I mean, you could see it in plain sight on the videos. I mean, they look worse than they've ever looked. Watching this issue for 20 years, I've, I've never seen anything like it. This is an entirely new level. This is not illegal immigration, which is you know a bad enough issue. The cost, the culture, the crime, the financial burden, the schools, the hospitals, the things we always talked about. No, this is a straight-up invasion force. And then DHS just granted TPS, illegally, temporary protected status, to 472,000 Venezuelans. Again, mostly hardened men, many from prison. That gives them eligibility to apply for a work authorization. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about immigration tomorrow. Then you have the budget numbers. We hit $33 trillion in debt. In just about two and a half days since we crossed that point. Everyone's talking we crossed $33 trillion in debt. As of this minute... I'm just looking now from the Treasury report. You could see day. I mean, they don't have minute by minute, but you could see by day. In about two and a half days, it went up another fifty billion. That means that we're adding about eight hundred thirty million in debt per hour, and that's a household debt of two hundred fifty-two thousand per household. And again, this is not just about, oh, we're going to mortgage our future. It's right now, right now, 
because of the interest on the debt, it is unsustainable. It's creating inflation, further inflates the cost, drives up the yields on the treasuries, makes mortgages unsustainable, makes the cost of living unsustainable, and we're in a death spiral. And we'll get into that a little bit more in the coming days as well. And then as we talked about, we spent a lot of time this week on the vaccine numbers. We now have estimates of up to 17 million people already died globally. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions injured, many long-term, and this is just the opening bid. I don't think that any form of government, any civilization, any political movement is prepared to deal with something like that. And we could go on to many other unsustainable things, but I wanted to give you those three in numbers. And that leads to the question, we're supposed to be an enlightened society, and here we are. We have anarcho-tyranny, life, liberty, property, upside down, inside out, fundamental rights, inside out, upside down. So I, I started off one day last week asking, provocative question, was the Constitution a failure? And since then, we had a listener that sent me an amazing Substack post that I really want to develop today, this guy Toby Rogers, that essentially asked the question in a recent post and actually, I think, did a better job framing the question and and he leaves the question open-ended but thought-provoking and I'm going to give you ultimately what, what I think my answer is but but the question is still worth pondering and the way he phrase frames it is he says it did liberalism fail I said that the constitution failed but it's the same thing because the constitution was built upon classical liberalism not the way we use the term conversationally today but classical liberalism, openness, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, due process, courts, rule of law, enumerated powers, you know, rights codified into a document, elections, and political liberalism was built upon freedom of commerce, free markets, private property, the right to earn money, start a business. And his point is that obviously, you know, for much of our history, a lot of good came out of these values that our government was founded upon. And it spawned and further accelerated enlightenment. You had the end of slavery. Okay, it brought about um, women's suffrage, you know, things that universally are, are liked, although <laughs> some would say, uh, heck, maybe that's what kind of un undid those accomplishments of the 1800s. But uh, whatever, we'll leave it at that. Um, and, you know, again, ended a lot of repression, just needless discrimination, not the way we use the term today, but real discrimination. And here we are, a hundred years after maybe the progressive era died down from its first wave, we don't have freedom of speech, we don't have freedom of assembly, 
every section of the Constitution is gone. Um, I mean, there's not a single right that is not under attack. And ultimately, I disagree with the premise that it was the Constitution that failed. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. That's what I wanted to develop and, and weave into the issues of the day. Ignorance. Ignorance. That's the catch word today. No constitution can overcome ignorance. And, and, and to be fair, he's not saying it was a failure, but he's just, his point is, if we ever somehow get back control, what, what do we establish in its place? He's like, you know, you go back to what we had. I mean, it, it, it didn't work. That, that's his premise is, is there something we need to think about? And if so, what is it? And it's a good question. It's a good question. I think it's worth pondering. But, but what I also want to highlight from the game, again, is that Toby Rogers, great substack here. Um, it's a long piece. Did Liberalism Fail is the title. It's worth reading it in full. I'm just going to kind of skim through it. And for, first off, he identifies what we have now in place of the Constitution. Wh- whatever the reason it failed, what do we have? We don't have classical liberalism. We don't have economic liberalism. We don't have constitutional rights. We don't have a republic. We don't even really have much of a democracy. He has a very interesting term, and I like it. What we have today is stakeholder fascism. I like that. And it's sort of a raw class warfare where the ruling class declared war on the rest of humanity just because they can. Because it's profitable to do so, and that's what they're doing. So, he identifies that there's about 10 different cartels that are involved in that stakeholder fascism, but the big ones are big pharma, big tech, military contractors, and government. And obviously, that they mix together. Civil society is just expected to obey. Everything is decided by executive order. Government, by the consent, has disappeared. The ideology that now governs our country operates from the belief that the pharma state owns your body, the pharma state is all-knowing, the pharma state is infallible, the pharma state is going to reduce costs. And that's basically the political and ideological uh, underpinnings of the modern Democrat Party, the mainstream media, the investment manager class, academia, science, medicine, and every elite institution and industry known to man. So that 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 is definitely what we have today. So his question, and as we do our live read today, I want I want to let it hang out in your mind for a second. Is liberalism, again, read in that constitutional open rights, enlightened society, is it the culprit or the victim here? In other words, was it the best system? It just got supplanted for various reasons. Or is it the actual culprit? But first, I just want to say we're sponsored today by our friends at iTarget Pro. Look, one of the few rights you still do have left, because we actually fight for it, is the Second Amendment. But as important as protecting the right is actually exercising the right in a prudent manner that you know how to defend yourself. Um... The biggest problem I see when I take people out to shoot first-timers, they jerk the trigger. 
right? They don't they don't have that perfect trigger control, sight alignment, picture alignment. These are things that come with practice. Practice, unfortunately, is time consuming and very expensive. Easily to get a good training at the range, you need you know three, four hundred rounds per time. Very expensive. Now you do want to go to the range sometime, but 90% of the time, if you use iTarget Pro, it's a laser bullet. They make all different types to fit your different caliber, 223 for rifle or nine millimeter for uh, handgun. And you download their app and boom, you fire the 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 gun and it doesn't fire anything, but it shines a laser and it projects. If you jerk that trigger, it will show it. You have everything but the recoil. But your reaction time, your draw from the holster, you could time it so you could get the timing and accuracy. Every drill you want, you could do a dry fire practice. Theoretically, if you're really good, you don't even need this. But this gives you a little bit more of a motivation. It's fun. It tracks it. gives you metrics. So again, for our listeners, go to itargetpro.com. You get 10% off if you put in offer code CR at checkout. The letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com, offer code CR. All right, so is liberalism the culprit or the victim of this sort of what I I often call it venture socialism, stakeholder fascism, transhumanism, all this stuff that we're living through? Very thought-provoking piece. And he says, look, on the one hand, we have the Marxian critique that liberalism always leads to fascism. The argument goes something like this. Economic liberalism may be fine for a generation or two, but talent is not evenly distributed across society. Bottlenecks and cartels are profitable. Competition gives way to rent-seeking behavior that impedes economic growth. And soon soon wealth becomes concentrated in a few hands. And then basically you land in the same place. So that, that's what the socialists always say. Obviously, the socialists just shortcut it and do it immediately. Um... And if that's the case, then we should agree with it and we want an alternative to liberalism. And I am seeing a growing cadre of people like Saurabh Arami. Uh, he's a writer and, and and kind of sometimes embodied through some of these people like J.D. Vance that are becoming almost like progressive populists. And I, I understand the sentiment based on what we're seeing. Then he notes, on the other hand, one can make a very strong case that the current crisis is an assault on liberalism in which case the movement for medical freedom should be fighting for a return to liberalism. And that's the question. But then again, if liberalism is so great, how did we end up with stakeholder fascism run by the very same people who claim to be liberals? Has liberalism actually ever been tried top to bottom in a society? And if so... Would it work, and what would it look like? And he ends off with this, because I want, I want to move on. The other side is crystal clear on what they want. They have a political philosophy, stakeholder fascism. They'll dress it up with all sorts of pretty names, public health, save the planet, save grandma, as fascism always does. And we know what they are doing. But if we are going to survive, we need to tell a better story than them. Right now, it feels like the story we are telling is that when we take power, we will just return to classical political and economic liberalism, and things will be better at this time. But what I'm trying to suggest is that there are holes in that story. If we're going to survive, we need a coherent political philosophy that people can call their own. 
If we're going to propose that liberalism is the way forward, we need to be able to explain why it was so quickly abandoned in 2020 and how we will address the contradictions inherent in liberalism going forward. I think we have a better story. We believe in the sovereignty of the individual, the sanctity of individuals and families. But humans are flawed creatures. We're both light and darkness. Liberalism unleashes human flourishing and creativity better than any other path in history. But any theory built around the sovereignty of the individual inevitably bumps up against human weakness and human frailty as well. And look, it's a brilliant piece, great writer. Um, Our founders grappled with the same thing. And the short answer to all of this is, first of all, it is an important thing to consider. The The important point is that did liberalism fail? Did constitutional values fail? In my view, no, it did not. Is it perfect? No. But we have not been able to, in over 250 years, identify a better system. He's right in what he's saying. You need to articulate something better. We do. I don't know what that is. <laughs> that, that's the problem. I mean, because anything else would presuppose a heavy-handed government. You would have to say, you know, we have to clamp down on behaviors we don't like. But the, the, the problem is, you again, you quickly land in the same place. This is always the, the, the paradox here between a government power that's going to be flawed immediately and potentially be the biggest menace versus hands-off, which you're then dealing with human weakness. But there's, there's one thing that I think is missing from this, this piece. Our found, founders weren't naive in thinking that oh, this constitution is going to solve all the problems. They were very open-eyed. And I mean even the most ardent federalists. Obviously, the anti-federalists saw problems coming. But their point is, I mean, what is the perfect system here? How do we unify and start a country? We're not going to get off the ground. Now, I'm not defending every last technical provision in the constitution Related to the technicalities of, you know, do you have a two-thirds veto threshold for the president or a three-quarters veto? And things that were very close calls at the convention. Maybe some things would, would be done better. And there's a lot of interesting essays we could write on that and talk about that headed for things we do a little differently. But the fundamentals of having free enterprise, freedom of speech, open society, um, yeah, I mean, you're not going to have better than that. It ultimately boils down to one thing. Our founders said it over and over and over again. There is no way to get around the people themselves. You can enshrine rights. You can make it that things aren't just, you know, kind of majority rule completely. But ultimately, an informed, enlightened society, an educated society, a a society with knowledge. You can't get around stupidity. And you can't get around complacency. There is no system of government that you could conjure up better fundamentally than the underpinnings of what we started this country with. And if you could theoretically put that on paper... You will have the same problems you have and had with our first system. 
And that is, you cannot guard against complacency and stupidity of the population, of an uneducated, uninformed population that is not guarding public policy issues that affect the people with zealousness. If you don't have that, you're done. What, what I disagree with Toby, and I, I don't say disagree really, I mean, again, it's, I agree with everything you said, but I think I would just add is that this didn't begin in 2020. 2020 was a huge watershed. But we, he, he's always like, you know, did liberalism ever succeed? I would argue it succeeded in the 1800s. For much of our history, before Woodrow Wilson, the Federal Reserve, and a lot of the progressive innovations of that time, when we abided by the original Constitution, it wasn't perfect. Obviously, you did have human flourishing that created modern technology, which we didn't have, so you had more disease and death. So, you know, no one would readily say, I want to go back to the 1800s in that respect. But in terms of the values, the liberties, the rights, I mean, I, I would say it was the best society we ever built. Perfections for God. We're never going to get that. I would say it did succeed. I would say we do have an example. But it was supplanted gradually over 100 years. There was the tranche pre-World War I. There was the tranche born out of post-World War II. America becoming more of an empire. The government becoming much stronger. And then gradually the breakdown of civilization, of culture, of society, beginning in the 60s. That broke the family, that created more needs, more debt, and dependency, and programs. And then the breakdown of education. I mean, it came in multiple tranches. Even in our own lifetime, even for those of us who are on the younger side, there were several layers of, you know, revolution in 92 when Clinton came to power, and then the MoveOn.org era, then the Obama era, and then kind of the woke era we're in. And each one built on the next. But the point is we had a population that was content with each breach. We, I would argue that we never were living a constitutional society. Remember, don't blame on the free market what's not free market. Everything you see today is created from regulatory capture, from... Overtaxation, regulation, litigation, subsidization, tendentious favors, government-created monopolies, and we're just dealing with the cascading effects of that. So it looks like it's natural. That's why I am all for a system with a doctrine that we are allowed to use the boot of government and its power, to, but, but you have to have a, a philosophy. You can't just say, oh, we're just going to try to say ban this or do that because then you're going to land in the same place, but with a nuance that it's going to be limited to reverse engineering the things that were created from anti-free market policies. You do have to be willing to do that, and I agree that sort of adjustment needs to be made. But once you make that adjustment, there's not much you can do. Like, what would we do? You'd say, if you own a corporation with more than a certain amount of people you're not allowed to put out a statement in support of BLM. I'd like to do that, but I think you understand very quickly that will not 
end well, and that will not turn into what we want it to be. There, there is no way of doing it. It's ultimately the people themselves. And, and this is what we missed. I want to give you a couple of quotes to, to accentuate this point. James Erdell, one of the greatest founders, the lead founder from North Carolina, in my view, um, one of the first, one of the original Supreme Court justices, abuse may happen in any government. The only resource against usurpation is the inherent right of the people to prevent its exercise. And, and that was the point. They, they never envisioned we'd be complacent that you would have the government just say, you have to let in a bunch of illegals. A state can't recognize marriage as a man or a woman. Um, you have to lock down your business. Okay, the government said so. The only way to fix it is to win an election or to you know change the constitution, even though they illegally changed it. You have to be willing to say no. And that's what we don't have. And we could this is a very deep discussion as to why we have this kind of like modern society that we just go along with things and because and a part of that is because life is just too good. As bad as 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 we talk about these things, it's still too good. It's complacency. That's the thing. People are complacent. Um the 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 spirit of our founding was built upon the principle of nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud. John Adams. That was the essence of everything Sam Adams talked about, everything Patrick Henry talked about. Give me liberty, give me death. It was that it really wasn't bad what the British were doing to them. We would die to go back to that level of so-called tyranny. Okay? In fact, our entire lives long before the rise of the Fourth Reich we were living through a much more heavy-handed government by a, by a factor of a million than anything King George did. But they understood that the only time to prevent it is before it's too late. And you have to nip it in the bud. And, and that's the biggest thing we miss, the complacency. No system can survive if you don't nip its usurpations against it in the bud. And we didn't do that. So there's no other system I could write on paper that will prevent that. It doesn't exist. Especially if you have a society more than more than a, you know, a few thousand people. You're not going to be able to police that through some sort of oh, the court will do this, the legislature will do this, the this sort of lawmaking will do this. This sort of, sort of executive branch will do that. There's no way around it. I've talked for many years. I've quoted the Madison on, you know, how they didn't envision judicial supremacism. This notion that the courts would have the final say. No, but no one. Here's the thing. What's the best government? The best government would be this. The best form of government would be you have a council of angels in the form of men that are sages, and they will have a commission. And decide what's right and what's wrong. Now, I I can't say it without laughing because obviously there's no way you could have something like that without becoming the worst form of tyranny quicker than anything else. There's no way of doing that. You know, I I would love nine Clarence Thomases to decide everything. (laughs) I would love that. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to play out that way. 
You know, even if I would be okay principally with running a society like that, it ain't going to stay for very long the way I want it to be. So you can't have a tribunal of judges. Well, Daniel, is it is it the Congress? Is it? And we always said it's it's called rather than judicial supremacism, it's called constitutional decompartmentalism. It's everyone as a whole has to zealously guard it. And each one is given different powers and leverage and public opinion. So it's all three branches of federal, state, county, and the people themselves. Depending on the issue, sometimes the people have more leverage to subvert and block the implementation if they believe it's unconstitutional. There, there is no better system than that. So Madison, in, it's, in his, it's called the Report of 1800. He said the resolution supposes that dangerous powers not delegated may not only be usurped and executed by the other departments, but that the judicial department also may exercise or sanction dangerous powers beyond the grant of the Constitution, and consequently that the ultimate right of the parties of the, to the Constitution to judge whether the compact has been dangerously violated must extend to violations by one delegated authority as well as by another, by the judiciary, as well by, as by the executive and the legislature. And he didn't like that. He's like, ultimately the people have, have to be the final judge. James Wilson... Um, he, he again was one of the greatest founders from Pennsylvania, one of the first Supreme Court justices, primary drafter in my, I, I believe of article three of the constitution. Um, really one of the, one of the smartest founders and, um, he noted where tyranny reigns, there is the country of ignorance and vice Ignorance and vice. Sam Adams used that term a lot too. They understood if the people are going to be ignorant, there's nothing you can do. If the people are going to sleep and just, oh, really? I don't know what's happened. There's no way around it. It's not a system of government. I mean, we need to find clever ways to wake up the normies. To wake up the normies. That's what it's all about. The normies are the problem. The people that go on with their life and they hear whatever the media tells them to hear and whatever they don't tell them to hear, which is always the most important information, it's out of sight, out of mind. Never happened. 17 million people never died. They might know there's some sort of problem at the border, but they don't quite grasp the invasion of it. And yeah, oh my gosh, the, I just went to the store. It's so expensive. Well, why the hell do you think it's so expensive? We, we, have a, we have a population of ignorant people. Now, I would argue that the powers that be in what Toby calls this stakeholder fascism, they themselves have done many things that made people drugged up, dumb, uneducated, distracted, pornified, whatever, and it's kind of a push-pull. They made the people dumb. But I have no way of ensuring in a constitution, thou shall not make people dumb and ignorant and complacent and superficial and apathetic. But there is no way you can guard, guard against it. They always understood that. And that's why, ironically, 
Benjamin Rush from of Pennsylvania, when he was planning out public schools, the concept of a public school, 1786. Nowadays, we, we wouldn't like that because that's the tool of brainwashing. But you have to understand the context. Back then, the concern was you either had educated people or uneducated. See, now educated connotes something very different. It connotes um, a polluted education. But they were concerned with, because there you were dealing with, if, if you didn't have what we call education, you are literally illiterate. And if you're illiterate, you're just not obviously going to be up on, whoa, 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 Congress just did this. The state legislature just did that. This issue is being debated. This public policy issue is is you know coming to the point. You, you, you're you're going to be sitting that out. So, you know, the powers that be, the the strongest players are going to manipulate public opinion and put out stuff and, and, and they'll gobble it up like a bunch of sheep. So he said... When, when defending the rationale for public schools, freedom can exist only in the society of knowledge. Without learning, men are incapable of knowing their rights. And where learning is confined to a few people, liberty can be neither equal nor universal. And that was the issue. See, now we have in this society, I believe Rush Limbaugh used to use this term, if I'm correct, we have so many stupid, smart people they might on paper have a high IQ and they'll have a formal education with several degrees, but they say the dumbest things and they're uninformed. And this is what it was. This is what was so scary during COVID. You saw how quickly people could just do like, do like that and, and, and get manipulated. There's no way around that. That is the problem. And I so so just to close the loop before we kind of get to some of the news of the day along the same theme. I don't believe liberalism, I don't believe the constitution failed. I mean, of course it failed in the end. I mean, it, it it's not there, but I don't think it was inherently flawed from day 1 that led to the failure more than another system. And I don't think there's an alternative to having a free, open society, open rights, open markets. I, there, there isn't. The only thing we need to do better is we have to have a way of maintaining a vigilant force, a strike force, you know, sons of liberty, that will constantly inform and engage, inform and engage from day one. Don't let things slide. Don't let cancers grow. What's the adage with treating disease, viruses, treating COVID, we saw that, treating cancer, Early treatment, early treatment. You need early treatment. Um, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like when we had people that, you know, COVID was a bioweapon designed to destroy people's lungs, uh, blood clots and everything, and you let it go without treating it, and then a guy winds up on a ventilator a few weeks, you know, two weeks into it. Yeah, I mean, your options are very limited, and often it came to the point where you had zero options, and it was over. Whereas... When you would catch COVID within the first few days, you'd have a multitude of different, you know, ways to cut down on the viral load and ways to, you know, preempt hyperinflammation, things like that, preempt blood clotting, um, you know, you know, blood flow stuff like natokinase. And 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 that's what you need. Now, the vexing problem we have is we can't even have this discussion before we either take back power or create our own Noah's Ark in, in certain parts and start our own system. And build off of that. But ultimately, it's vigilance. 
vigilance and education, engagement, there is no shortcut around that. That that that's the way I want to answer the question. It, it doesn't. I'm not trying to dismiss it like, oh, that's a oh, you know, what do you expect? It's a thought provoking question that you know we we do have to think about why we failed and what is it we want. Unfortunately, I don't even know how to even get to the point of pondering that because you know we're totally locked out and we're in the gulag now. Um, but that kind of leads me to to the next point. Why are we in the gulag? Because we have a paralysis of initiative on the right. This dumb, uninformed, illiterate, uneducated electorate that we always talk about that just lops up everything that the liberal media throws at them, we have that on the right. We have a problem of normie conservatives normie Republican voters that don't know anything other than whatever sources they get from Fox News or whatever, you know, uh, conflation of um, different uh, sources they have. That's all they know. And they're usually the least important things and the most important things they don't know. They don't know the who's who and what's what of politics. They don't know who's a fraud and who's not, which issues are good, what we should be doing, what are the leverage points. Well, Daniel, that's kind of a, you know, a nerdy thing to do. Well, when I was growing up, it was. But now that it affects our lives the way it does, on every aspect of it, everyone needs to engage. And the problem we have is that whereas the normies... In general, what you would call maybe your swing voters in the middle of the political divide are complacent in understanding what the Fourth Reich is doing to us. The normies, normie Republicans are complacent in understanding that the Republican Party and the conservative movement is a controlled opposition designed to ensure that we don't even unlock some sort of you know, redress that maybe we could seek to either neutralize what they're doing to us or evacuate ourselves from it. And that is because whereas the the, the right-wing media is no different from the left. They obfuscate. They tell their constituents certain things very specifically and what they don't want them to know, they make sure they don't know it. So in the case of the normies in general, the swing normies, it's going to be they don't know about any of this stuff going on in the Fourth Reich. In the case of the people, Republican normies, they might know it, but not to the degree they need to know it. But they don't they won't know how the Republicans are screwing us. So it's always, oh, it's the Democrats fault. And that's how you get to a situation we're in where a lot of people are asking me, how is it that Trump openly betrays us on so many issues and, and, and people are still going for him? And what I'm starting to tell people is who's to say people even know that? And increasingly, this is what we're seeing. I want to play a clip here from an Iowa voter when asked about Trump's comments on abortion. Take a listen here. 
if he really did say that, then that's what a step away, you know. Because uh, I I believe that in Iowa, in Iowa we need to have a heartbeat bill too. Something like that cause you to consider supporting someone else? Actually, yeah, it, it it will after I do my research to see if that's true. Okay, you hear that? So she didn't even know what Trump said. Never heard of it. She was suspicious if he really said that, right? Because automatically, it's, of course, the media is making it up. But yeah, I would rethink my support if that's what he said. And you look at that, what he said about a million things the last week. People don't even know. You know, you'll have a lot of times where, for example, with COVID, I've seen the polling in Iowa. Were the lockdowns a disaster? Of course. Is Trump to blame? No. Why? Because they're not aware of it. Because conservative media dumbs down our people and informs them with the dumbest pieces of information at a given time. Not the most actionable things that Republican voters could affect, which is alluring and inciting their passion against the wayward Republicans. That is the most impactful thing you could do. Instead, it's always, but the Democrats, uh, Trump, 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 Trump. To you guys who listen to the show, I mean, you're well acquainted with what he says. And it's not like he hides it. But you'd be surprised the degree of firestorm and incessant repetitiveness that you need for a certain story to be etched in the minds of voters. And Republican voters are no different. They don't know. How do I know I'm right? Because this is not about Trump. There's nothing unique about Trump. Some of you might think, well, but Trump's done so much good and they hear all of his statements, so it's just lost on them. Again, I could swallow that if in every other primary we're throwing out the rhinos. But we're not. We're, we're, we're winning fewer primaries than ever. It's the, it's the same problem long before Trump, and it's still a problem. Trump makes it worse by endorsing these clowns. But even without Trump, put him aside. How is it that Greg Abbott was able to defeat two better challengers with almost 70% of the vote? How is it that Mitch McConnell kept winning? You know, when we challenged in 2014, he won by 25 points. Every single primary challenge goes down in flames. It's not because voters don't agree with us and side with the establishment, because when you poll it, they agree with us. And B, as I always say, when they have a primary the incumbent runs on our views. They run ads on our views. Every one of them gets reelected. Every single one of them. That's what it is. I always bring up the example of Liz Cheney. And that was because Trump finally used his movement and his name for, for the good. And you see the potential if he would have done that elsewhere. Everyone... Every Republican voter in Wyoming got the message. Oh, wow. She is totally with the Democrats, totally undermining us. Boom. She didn't just lose. She she only got like 28% of the Republican vote. And that's how it should always be. But it's not. They just don't know what these guys are doing. And I vacillate back and forth between being ticked off at the voters and blaming them or kind of saying, maybe if I didn't do this for a living, I wouldn't know who these guys are either. I don't know. But that is the problem. It's the complacency. There's no way around that. I could get you the greatest candidate in the history of the world and do everything you want. 
But if the people don't know about it, and they don't know all of the bad things either the incumbent or the guy being promoted the most, the most name ID has done to us, they're going to go with name ID. And that's just how it is. It's subversion. It doesn't have to be this way. See, both, both the right and left media dumbs people down and fools them with obfuscation. The difference is the left media obfuscates in pursuit of their agenda. The right media obfuscates to subvert its own at least stated agenda. And that's why we are where we are today. And now that I'm on this point, I just want to go through just some of this stuff we're seeing with Trump. You know, in that same interview, Trump was asked by the reporter, you know, you know, talk about how you said you're going to shoot at the cartels. And he fired back, I didn't say that. And she quoted it back to him. And he said, I didn't say that. I'm thinking, why would, he, why would he go back on that? It's a winning issue. I mean, the border is like the biggest winning issue. And it's a nuance that people don't get about Trump, but I want to give it over to you. You know, the strongest argument I've, I've seen for Trump, a lot of people are saying, look, he is the most, he's got to be the most motivated to fight these people after everything they did to him. So he's going to come in and just do it. And I tell people, you're getting very confused. There are two Trumps, and these interviews bring it out. There's the campaign Trump, and then there's the governing Trump. But even on the campaign trail, you could see the governing Trump embodied through the, the interviews. Why? What's the difference between either these prepared videos he does, you know, with the flag behind him in his office or, um, or rallies, campaign events versus interviews? There's a reason there's a huge dichotomy between the Trump you see in an interview and the one at speeches. At speeches, sometimes his statements will be a more emotionally satisfying than even DeSantis. Like, hey, you really, yeah, I'm going to throw out every illegal and I'm going to do this. I'll abolish that. I'll, I mean, whatever you want to hear, you, you get. But then often on the same day, on the same day, then he'll sit down with it for an interview. I'm shocked his staff hasn't locked them off. I, 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 I would expect henceforward they are going to do that and limit the interviews he does. He comes to the interviews and it's like, they'll, the, the, the reporters will even tee it up for him. And he'll run away from it. It's weird. It's like yesterday Trump said Megyn Kelly's a nasty woman. I was thinking she was so nice to him. She said, you know, could a man become a woman? He he made a fool out of himself. I Even Megyn, you could look at her face. She was kind of shocked at how weak Trump was. She teed it up for him. He refused to swing at it. He's scared. The difference is this. When you are in front of a cam, when you are in front of a cheering right wing audience, there's no adversity. You're not facing an opponent. Kind of like me right now. I'm in front of a microphone. I can say what I want. I'm a big talker. Would I be this great if I were put into a governing position? I would hope so, but you know that that's very unlikely. There's very few people who have done that which is what's so remarkable about DeSantis. But then, when, when Trump governs, you have all these people. The smart people told me, the Democrats want this. And he's scared. He wants to make peace. He doesn't want 
fighting. He, it, it's, the, it's irony. He looks like the most quarrelsome guy around, right? But no, when it comes to the issues, he's and you could listen to these interviews. He says it. So an interview is a microcosm of governance because you have someone standing opposite you asking questions, doing a little bit of pushback, challenging, asking about inconsistencies. And, you know, that's what an interview does. And right away, he doesn't have the fortitude, belief, knowledge, depending on the issue, sometimes a mixture of all of them, to power through it. So his natural instinct is to run away. No, no, well, we're trying to make everything work. I didn't do it. Not say, you're damn right we're doing that. And here's why. That, that's what he's like. Everything in governance, everything you and I want to do is not feasible. It will cause problems. And even smart people on the right will say that. Those are the people who have in his administration. That's the problem. And that is why he doesn't go to the debates. The debate is the ultimate adversity. Challenging. He can't. He looks very weak. And look. It's extremely insidious. Disgusting how my colleagues let him get away with that. But yeah, I understand why if I were a Trump advisor, I'd say stay the heck away from that. But is this about Trump or about us understanding who is the strongest, best person to lead us? And shouldn't he stand side by side and articulate his views? To give a monologue at, at at a rally... Is very different than that context because that context more closely resembles the real thing. Okay, it's like, you know, in special forces, they will eventually have training drills with live ammo and real human beings. House clearing. Okay? That that's a different that's that's a very different level of training. But you need that because that replicates real life. Anyone could say, I'm going to do that. We have had no lack of Republicans. I'm going to abolish this department. I'm going to cut spending. I'm going to deal with the leftists. Whatever you want to hear, they're going to do. How many have had the guts to put in the lawyers and the staff to make it happen? Fight through the party. Fight through the media. Fight through the adversity and implement. Pretty much, I mean, at an executive level... Correct me if I'm wrong, but do we have a single other example outside of Florida doing that on any level? No, we don't. But this just gets back to the point I'm talking about, that we have rampant ignorance. You could only lose a constitution like we had with ignorance. You could only not have a movement fighting back against it when the people compose your movement, are themselves ignorant. You can only have the Republican Party betray you for this many years, and it continues if people are ignorant and uninformed. There's no way around it. Do men on the street, all the things we talk about every day, how many people know it? How many people know? They don't. You know, let me just bring this point out with <clears throat> something I saw on Twitter from <clears throat> a random guy I just saw on my feed. 
Four Republican senators wrote a letter basically asking the White House to send missiles to Ukraine. So it's not enough what we're doing. We need to do even more. And someone on Twitter noted how, you know, three out of the four are from red states. You had Susan Collins from Maine, but you had Cotton from Arkansas, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and Roger Wicker of Mississippi. And someone pointed out, like, what the heck, Roger Wicker? I mean, this guy needs to be needs to be primaried, you know, because he will be in cycle for the next for 2024. He will be up next year in a primary for for reelection. And I, I I looked at that comment and I was like, you're right. I think I responded to him. Um, you're absolutely right. What is it with these red state senators that are just leftist beyond belief? But <clears throat> could I could I clue you in on something? There is something called Google, Google this right now. Politico, Trump endorses Wicker, Chris McDaniel. And you'll see an article. And basically, Chris McDaniel was going to run against Wicker. I was working with him on that. This was, you know, picture January 2018. And Trump comes in and endorses Wicker. I mean, Wicker was always just a leftist wasting a red state. There's many of them. All right. So, whoops, we can't do that. We can't have nice things. So much for that. So he didn't run. But then you had Thad Cochran, the other senator who was there for a million years and a leftist. He died. And if you remember, Chris McDaniel, for that original term, ran against him, won the first round. And then there was that cheating the the, the second round. And of course, very few people joined us in supporting him. Whatever. So Thad Cochran wound up remaining. But then he died as we predicted he would. And it was a vacancy. They appointed Cindy Hyde-Smith, who's still there, extreme leftist. She was actually literally a Democrat most of her life, just leftist beyond belief. Every issue, every issue. So she's not righteous on a single issue. These are the two senators we have. So it's like, all right, so now Chris is like, okay, I'll run for that seat. Because, heck, at least, okay, you want to say Trump feels duty-bound to endorse every incumbent, even though he was supposed to be a different sort of president and not do that and actually, you know, drain the swamp, but okay. But th- this is, you know, just an appointed senator that's now standing for a special election. So you don't count that as an incumbent. Mitch McConnell, uh, so at the time, Mitch McConnell set forth the policy that anyone who's appointed, once they're appointed, even if they're initially running for the first time for their own, in their own right, they, they, they're going to be treated by the NRSC as an incumbent. And he did that with all of them. And he went to Trump and Trump endorsed Cindy Hyde Smith. So he pooped on every last thing we did. And of course, the other senator on that letter is is um, Lindsey Graham. And that you well know, we were on our way to finally getting him out. He was very unpopular and Trump endorsed him. And now, you know, they're, you know, he's one of his top guys. And not only that, Lindsey is the one who gets Trump to endorse many other bad people as well. So, I mean, it's just pure ignorance. So you have this frustrating dynamic where because of a lack of knowledge, so many people in this country believe in stupid things and don't believe in the right things. They don't know what's going on. But then you have a second layer of ignorance where even people that broadly want what we want, they don't know what the hell is going on. And 
they just whatever. And I mean, and that's why I want to tell you, Trump is not new in that respect. I think it adds extra energy to it and it captures even more of our people and makes it even harder to break through than maybe a typical Republican. But let's not forget, pick your pick your worst Republican governor and senator, and I will show you that they won their primaries with 70 to 90 percent of the vote. Every one of them. So this is the problem we have. And that's why we're going to start with our Liberty Strike Force teams. The state legislatures are coming to session. I mean, ultimately, this is what we need to do is to publicize what these people do to us. That people understand. But I'm sorry to say that does have to include Trump. We cannot allow him to continue like this. By the way, I just I just want to end off. Ken Cuccinelli has an amazing um, Twitter thread that encapsulates this on the border. So the, the Trump super PAC put out an ad. Trump sent 5,200 troops to the border, and it shows a picture of him with troops with guns. Here's the problem. Remember, Ken was the deputy DHS secretary, and any good thing that ultimately, finally, too little, too late, came from the admin was from Ken. I worked with him on a lot of things at the time. And Ken's obviously supporting DeSantis. And he said, Trump is admiring fully armed troops. This is the picture coming out of a hello, suggesting Trump put armed forces on our border. In fact, the troops he put near the border um, were armed with paperclip staplers, laptops, along with occasionally deadly set of binoculars. That's it. Troops always have rules of engagement. What were the Trump rules? Don't engage. Seriously, don't engage. And guess what? They didn't engage. It was a pure political show. Go back and look for yourself. See if you can find Trump troops turning anyone back or engaging in any way to stop the flow of illegals. You won't find any. Trump's troops only perform supporting supportive functions. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Biden did. Here is Joe Biden's version, and he compares it. You can see it. There's no difference. Bullcrap number two. Here's Trump talking tough on finally taking on the cartels. It's now time? Now? Why not when you were actually there? Remember, Trump had the worst border flow at the time. It's the same thing with the, you know, we started the show with numbers, we'll end with numbers. It's the same thing with the border numbers. I mean, with the budget numbers. Yeah, they're worse now because it just builds on itself. But Trump set that up and it was worse. Both the border and budget were worse under Trump than Obama. The irony is the only factors that stem the tide at all after letting them in for two years. I I, I wrote hundreds of articles at the time. I covered every aspect of that crisis. We begged and begged and begged him to do the right thing. I was very gentle with him because we wanted to just appeal to him. And the two factors are Ken Cuccinelli, who is not supporting him, and primarily COVID. That's that the, the 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 sick little irony is without COVID, we would have the, the border flow would have flowed right into Biden's administration. Right? See, they get to say there was this perfect break, like, oh. You know, often you'll hear there were almost no border crossings right as Biden took office. That is true, and it's a great talking point. 
But the, the thing is, COVID shut that down. You go back, you know, a year earlier, you go back a little bit before, it was horrible. Now, yeah, I mean, Biden is obviously just blown. It's always going to come to the next level. Everyone one-ups. It's like a ratchet. But, I mean, what are we supposed to do? And then, you know, Trump puts out, oh, I, I uh, you know, deported a, a million illegals. It's like, no, you actually deported about 360,000 a year, which is less than Obama. Like, stop lying. He puts in there, this is Ken, just as I moved into the DHS deputy secretary slot in November 2019, the cartel slaughtered American Mormon women and children in North Mexico. The next morning, Trump called me about it. I pleaded with him to start taking on the cartels, and he said he would, but he always backed down. I repeatedly came back to this topic with Trump, and I fought against other elements of his own admin to even begin taking on the cartels, but Trump caved. Um, Trump said, and this is a quote, Secretary Esper, he was the defense secretary, horrible guy, by the way, will never go for it. To which I responded, he works for you. Just order it. But Trump wouldn't do it. This is so subtle, but it's so telling. I live that every freaking day. And you see it again with the interviews. Even I was starting to get taken in. Look, maybe this time it'll be better. Maybe, you know, at least he doesn't have Jared Kushner this time. So maybe there's a chance. But you watch him in the interviews. And this is during a GOP primary when you have, you know, a right-wing opponent like DeSantis. So you're going to be at the top of your game, pandering to the base. His interviews are so revealing. Whoa. It's like, yes, that is the Trump of governing. Open your eyes. Open your minds. Open your hearts. And that's all we can do. Send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. All of our shows, we got to inform. We're not going to get anywhere without an informed at least movement, at least sliver of the population to create something in a few red states, much less take back the whole country. You know, if we can't deal with the ignorant Republican voters, you sure as heck aren't going get, to get in with the swing voters. Let me know. You agree, disagree, certainly a lot of topics covered. Uh, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com is the email. Till tomorrow. God bless you all.